You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning and good to see you again. I just talked to you just a couple of moments ago. And uh, it's a great day for us to gather together. And I appreciate that God even uses our mistakes. And because we all have mistakes and we're flawed people and none of us is perfect. And, um, and so we just thank the Lord that he's able to use just us as we are anyway. And I bless the Lord for Donnie and I bless the Lord for our team that leads us in worship week after week after week. And so I just bless the Lord for all of those who serve. I want to remind you before I start preaching this morning that we do have some, what we're calling growth classes that we're launching that's going to be starting on October the 2nd. And these growth classes are going to be a number of classes that are based upon certain topics of interest. I want to encourage you to be a part of that. If you're not in a small group, you can get plugged in a growth class at 9.15 or at 11 o'clock. They're going to be offered at both hours. And if you um, maybe have kids who are in a 9.15 delivery, this can give you the opportunity to be in a growth class at 9.15 and you and your family worship together at 11 o'clock. Or it can do the reverse. So we just want to encourage you to get plugged in that because since one of our core values is we grow in discipleship, we want people to grow in the truth of God's word. So just want to remind you of that. I read a book many years ago by John Maxwell called Partners in Prayer. And in that book, he tells a true story of how an entire state came together to pray that God would intervene in their lives because of a crisis that they were experiencing. It was in 1876, in the state of Minnesota, grasshoppers began to take over the state. And because that state grew a lot of wheat, not only for that state, but for the entire United States, they were concerned about the grasshoppers destroying their crops. And in 1876, there was a devastating time because they lost so much. But then in the spring of 1877, they began to see that the grasshoppers were coming back. And this time they were coming back by the billions. And they were concerned that they would lose everything. So the governor of the state of Minnesota in 1877 declared a national day of prayer and fasting on April the 26th. And so the entire state came together, committed to praying that God would spare them from this this incredible disaster that was looming. Businesses were closed down. The schools were shut down. People stayed home. The shops and the restaurants were closed. And on that day, April the 26th, 1877, was a quiet hush over the entire state of Minnesota. And the people prayed. The next day was a beautiful day. But it was unusual temperatures for that time of the year. They were experiencing a heat wave that was coming through. And the people were devastated. Because with that heat wave, all of the larvae began to hatch of these grasshoppers. And they felt God has not heard their prayer. And then the second day, the larvae were beginning to hatch. And the third day, there were billions of little grasshoppers all over the state of Minnesota. The people were weeping. They were wondering, what are we going to do? Our crops are certainly destroyed. But the next day, a heavy frost came. And that heavy frost killed every single grasshopper as though they were poisoned or burned. 
And the reality is this, if they had not hatched first, then they would have been protected from the frost. But by their hatching with the hot temperature, the state of Minnesota was spared a disaster from grasshoppers. That has gone down in history books for Minnesota, stating the day that God spared them through the people praying. A lot has changed since 1877 in our culture, hasn't it? When's the last time you've heard a governor of any state calling for a day of fasting and praying? We don't hear that anymore. We're living in a culture today where people want to move away from prayer. We have removed prayer from the arena in our public um, um, life. We have removed prayer from schools and you can no longer pray. Just a hint, let me give you a little bit of information. As long as there's teachers and tests, there will always be prayer in school. And teachers, as long as there are pupils and principals, there will always be prayer in school. But the reality is we're living in a culture now where nobody wants to pray anymore. We're told we can't pray in a public arena. We can't pray in school. And now have you noticed that people don't pray? They say, oh, I'm sending my thoughts out for you. Like that is supposed to be helpful. (laughs) And then we live in a culture now that when there is praying, it's inverted and perverted. I'm thinking about prayers that God would bless planned parenthood or prayers that God would demonstrate himself present at a drag conference, and I'm not talking about race cars. Or, as I saw this week, somebody showed me a video. It was a chapel service on Duke University where a young lady was beginning the service and she opened with prayer, and here was her prayer. Our gracious queer God, we come to you today. So we're living in a culture where we see prayer has been removed. And you know what the tendency for us to do as a church is to point our finger at that, to criticize it, to condemn it. And yet we better be very careful as a church because nobody has told us we cannot pray, but too many churches have willingly given up the discipline of prayer. And we don't pray like we used to. We don't pray believing that God can really bring changes in our lives, that God can really change our families, that God can change our culture, that God can change our neighbors, that God can change our coworkers, that God still is the same God as we sang about yesterday, today, and forever. And he is still omnipotent, he's still omniscient, he is still omnipresent, and he still wants his people to call on him. We've been looking at this letter that Paul has written to Timothy. And we're calling it for the church because 1 Timothy is written for the church. It's written to a young protege of Paul's, but it's written for the church and it's written for us today. And as we've been looking at 1 Timothy, we looked at chapter one in the last two weeks and we've noticed a couple of things. The first thing he does is he calls us to guard the gospel and to watch out for counterfeit Christianity around us. And then last week we saw as Garrett brought a wonderful message of reminding us of the glorious power of the gospel to transform the lives of people. But today, as we get into chapter two, verses one through six, we are going to be dealing with what Paul is calling the church to be involved in, and that is prayer. So if you have your Bibles, 
open to 1 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Now, the Apostle Paul is writing to Timothy, but he is also writing to the church. And we saw in the first week that this whole letter can be broken down into three specific goals. Paul is challenging Timothy and the church to, number one, guard the gospel. Secondly, he's explaining to them how to govern the church. And the third thing is how to guide in godly behavior. Now, Paul jumps back from one of these to another, and he doesn't necessarily stay in a concise order. Today, he is giving us examples and he's giving us a charge on how we are to behave in the body of Christ specifically with the issue of prayer. And this is what he has to say about prayer. If you look at chapter two, beginning in verse one, he says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Father, thank you for your word. And Father, as we unpack these verses today and as you charge us with the task of being a praying people, I ask, Father, that you would convict our hearts, that you would teach our hearts. And Father, today as a corporate body, we would understand the importance and the the necessity of praying together. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, the thing about this passage is it breaks down very simply. The apostle Paul gives us some instruction in praying, and he begins by telling us how we are to pray. Then he moves to the next thing, talking about what we are to pray. Then he tells us for whom we are to pray. And then lastly, why we are to pray. And so Paul just puts it together very simply. And he's talking to you and me, not only as individual believers, but mostly as a corporate body of believers in a faith family. So what I want to do is just take these four questions and be able to answer them this morning. And here's the first thing he asked, how are we to pray? How are we to pray? When we pray, what are the things that we should, should, we should do as we pray? And how are we to go about it? The Apostle Paul in the first part of verse one tells us how we are to pray. He says, first of all, then I urge you. He says, first of all, I urge you. Now, some things he tells us are explicit and some things he tells us are implicit. Some things are specific and some things are implied. And in this verse, this little section of this verse, he tells us three things about how we are to pray. He says, first of all. When he says, first of all, he's telling us that prayer is not simply an activity on a list. It's not that prayer is just the top of a list that he's going to make. Sometimes we all make lists that don't really mean priority. 
Like we might make a list for the grocery store and the first thing might be eggs and we need milk and we need coffee creamer and whatever else it is that we need. It's not necessarily that we're putting those in a priority, we're just making a list. But in this case, Paul is making a priority. When he says, first of all, he's not saying the first thing on the list. He says the most important priority for the body of Christ is to pray. That's what we're to be about, praying. Now, the people hearing this would have known that, particularly the Jews, because they have heard their whole life the importance of prayer. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7 He says, these I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices will be acceptable on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all people. And then Jesus, when he comes in the scene in his ministry, he goes into the temple. The merchants are there making a mockery of the house of God. And Jesus quotes this verse. He says, and he was teaching them and saying to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? The greatest priority in the life of a church is prayer. And prayer is connected to worship. Now, does that mean we don't do evangelism? No, we do evangelism. Does that mean we don't do ministry? Of course not, we do ministry. But prayer is to be the centerpiece of that. This is not called to be a house of preaching, though we preach. It's not a house of worship, though we worship. It's not a house of ministry, though we ministry. It needs to be a house of prayer. Why? Because prayer is what gives power to preaching. Prayer is what brings the presence of God in worship. Prayer is what gives the provision for ministry. And of all the things that we are to be known for, the people of deep, intimate praying. Because this is a house of prayer. Then he says the second thing. He says, I urge you. Go back to that. I urge you. He says, I urge you. The word urge means that I beg you. I plead with you. I implore you. I want you to be passionate and urgent when it comes to prayer. And then what's implied is the you, which means the body of Christ. This is not just simply private prayers that we are to have, but Paul is speaking to the church. And here's what he's saying. Church, together, corporately, I want you to have the priority of your ministry to be prayer. And so if we say how we are to pray, this is how it breaks down. We are to pray corporately as a church with urgency and passion. It's not enough for just us to pray our private prayers in our prayer closets. We are called to come together as a body of Christ and with a sense of urgency and a sense of real passion to collectively call out to God on behalf of of the nations of the world. Why is this so important? Here's why it's important. Go through the pages of the New Testament and what you will find is no great work of God happened without it being preceded by prayer. Think of the day of Pentecost. They were praying together and the church was born. Think of Peter in prison. The church was praying together and God sent an angel from heaven and released Peter from prison. You go all through the book of Acts and you will find the gathering of the church together, corporately calling out to God and God doing a supernatural work in the midst of them. Go through history and you'll find that. 
1857, you know what you'll discover? The Great Awakening was preceded by prayer. A man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere in Manhattan, New York, of all places, gathered six people from his church to pray together. And those six people made a commitment that every single day at noon, they were going to pray for New York and pray for the nation. Those six people soon grew into 6,000 people. Every single day at lunch, praying. And those who couldn't make it at lunch went to their churches at night. And there were tens of thousands of people showing up to pray on behalf of the nation. Within a year, 10,000 people every single week were being saved. 10,000 people every single week were giving their lives to faith in Christ. That whole culture was being transformed. It spread to Chicago. And in Chicago, 2,000 people every single day were gathering to pray for the nations. It spread overseas to England and Britain. And every speaking, English-speaking language in the world was being impacted. And thousands upon thousands of people were coming to faith in Christ. In 1904, a young man by the name of Evan Roberts it was a, a Welsh young man. And as he was praying for revival in his country because the moral decline had continued to go down. And as he watched the debauchery and the sinfulness of his own culture, he began calling out to God. And he went to his pastor and he said, can I bring a message one Sunday morning on the importance of praying? And the pastor said, no, you cannot have my time. But after this morning service, you can come and whoever wants to hear you can stay and hear you. That's really encouraging, isn't it? And so the pastor finished, a young man came up, six people stayed, and he began to share with them the need for prayer, and they began to pray, and it began to spread. Then all of a sudden, churches throughout that Welsh land were being filled with people, and they were praying and praying and praying, and all of a sudden, this revival swept through, that, 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 the, the Welsh revival came in, and through that, people were being converted, so much so that the courts had to shut down their courts because there was no cases to deal with. The jails were shut down because nobody was being arrested anymore. The bars were boarded up. The policemen had nothing to do but to form quartets and sing in churches at night. People were walking in the streets singing hymns all day long. The coal miners were being so converted that their profanity was being removed. And get this, because there was no more profanity, the mules couldn't obey their commands because they only heard profanity in the commands and now they had no idea what to do. I guess that means you gotta get some mules converted too. But you see what happens? Every bit of it was through the church people of God getting together and praying and calling out to him corporately. And when we see the churches in America getting back to that, when we see our own church getting back to a place where we are willing to gather together and to corporately call out to God that he would bring a change in our lives and in our community. As I was preparing this message this week, I was so convicted by the Spirit of God. And I was convicted as the pastor of this church and one of the pastors in leading this church. There were times when we set aside entire months of prayer and fasting. Many of you remember that. 
There were times we did that in May. We did that in October. But over the years, I feel we have become so busy in our lives that we have moved away from that kind of corporate prayer time. I met with our pastors this past week, our senior leadership team, and I shared my convictions with them, and they said, we agree. I sent it out to our elders, and our elders said, we agree. We need to get back to that. So here's what we're doing. We're calling for the month of October. For the month of October, Tuesday nights in October, that we would gather here at 6.30 to 7.30 to pray. No music, no programs, just simply calling people together to pray. We want to do it on a Tuesday night because we don't interfere with ministry deliveries on Wednesday nights or other nights. But this will be a designated time for the body of Christ to come together corporately and with a sense of urgency and passion to be what God has called us to be. And I want to challenge you to join us in that. We're going to do it for the month of October, just four Tuesday nights. And if the Holy Spirit leads us to go further, then we're going to give obedience to him and keep in step with him. But we're going to begin in October, 6.30 to 7.30. There'll be no nursery. So you'll have to make up your mind how you can be here. But we're calling us to pray because this should be the priority of our lives. So Paul says how we should pray. We should pray corporately with a sense of urgency and passion. Now, here's the second question. What are we to pray? What are we to pray? When we gather together, what is the body to pray? And Paul gives us four specific prayers that we are to pray when we gather together corporately. He says, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings. When we pray, those four things should be part of our prayer time. So let me explain those to you. First of all, he says prayers of supplication. Prayers of supplication are prayers of request on behalf of somebody who's in need. The word supplication simply means lacking. So what do we do? We pray on behalf of people who have a need. They may have a financial need. They may have a medical need. They may have maybe um, a, a need to be convicted by the Spirit of God. They may have a need for salvation. We are to pray prayers of supplication because of things that people need. Secondly, we are to have prayers that reflect reverence and worship. He says supplication and prayers. The word prayers in the Greek is the most common basic word for prayer, but it's unique in the sense that it has the picture of meeting with God. It has the picture of reverence and worship. And it covers all kinds of things like adoring God, praising God, confessing sin. But we're to have prayers that where we know that when we're praying, we're not being flippant, we're entering into the presence of a holy God. And there's a reverence and there's a worship as we do that. Thirdly, we're to have prayers of intercession. The word intercession just means to stand in between an individual and someone else. And it means that you're to do it by holding nothing back. Prayers of intercession is when I pray on behalf of other people. I stand between them and God and I call out their name to God. And I ask God to do some miraculous work, whether it's the conviction of the Holy Spirit, whether it's drawing people to faith in Christ, whatever that intercession is, we're to pray for that. And finally, we're to pray prayers of thanksgiving. 
What are prayers of thanksgiving? It's just simply giving thanks to God. You know, it's interesting. Most of the time we pray, we have no problem with the supplication. We have no problem with the intercession. The one thing we sometimes do is we don't enter with reverence and worship and seldom do we pray with thanksgiving. We're to give thanks to God in all things. By the way, let me just show you something. When you and I get to heaven, there will be no more need for supplication. We won't pray for anybody's needs to be met because they will all be met in Christ. There will be no need for just general prayers because we'll constantly be in the presence of God and worshiping him. There'll be no need for intercession. But the one thing that will continue through all of eternity is praise and thanksgiving forever and ever. So when we gather together, this is how we should pray or what we should pray. We should pray these kinds of prayers. Now, one of the things that's really interesting to me is I love to watch churches that have really developed this character and this culture of prayer. The Brooklyn Tabernacle in New York has been built on the culture of prayer. When Jim Cimbala took over that church many years ago, it was a dying church. And he began to look at the culture around him and he understood this, that all the church growth methods that everybody's pushing out there of how to grow a church will not work in Manhattan. And so he said, the only thing that's gonna happen here is prayer. So he began to pray and they began to pray and people began to pray and trust God and God started sending people. You know, today they meet every Tuesday evening and they have over 1,500 people who show up just to pray. And when you walk into that place, it is filled with this, this, this atmosphere of prayer. They come in there and they pray on behalf of people. They pray and they ask God to intercede in their lives. And as a result, what we have seen over the years, there have been countless people who have come to faith in Christ, prostitutes, pimps, drug addicts, those who are addicted to all kinds of different things, the very dregs of society, the homeless, outstanding, upstanding people. And every single week because of their prayers, as they bring all of these things to God, God is doing a miraculous work in that area. So he tells us how we are to pray. We're to pray corporately. He tells us what we are to pray, the kinds of prayers we're to pray. Now, we can look at that and say, okay, that's pretty simple. That's straightforward. Now we're going to get into a place that's really going to test who we are with our prayers. See, not only does he tell us how we're to pray and what we're to pray, but thirdly, for whom are we to pray? Who do we pray for? Who do we pray for? And the apostle Paul tells the people in Ephesus who they are to pray for, and they don't like it one bit. Have you noticed it's real easy for me to pray for people like me and people who like me? But it's really hard to pray for people who are a lot like me and who don't like me. And that's what was happening in the church in Ephesus. And what does Paul do? He reminds them who they are to pray for. First of all, then I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions. He tells the people two specific groups they are to pray for. And here they are. Number one, for all kinds of people. The people in Ephesus were only praying for the people that they liked. If you're in my inner circle, you get my prayer. If you're not, too bad for you. 
And you know what? If you don't live the same kind of lifestyle I live, if you don't have the same political persuasion that I have, if you don't have the same kind of ideologies that I have, forget it. I will never pray for you. And the apostle Paul is saying, no, you pray for all kinds of people. When he says pray for all people, he's not talking about every single person in the world. That's impossible. But what he's saying is pray for all kinds of people. Pray for the people who are not in your circle. Pray for the people who don't see life the same way you do. Pray for those people who are believers. Pray for those people who are not believers. Pray for those people who live moral lives that God would use them as a testimony. Pray for people who are immoral and desperately need the message of the gospel. Pray for those people who are in the same political persuasion as you. Pray for those people who are not. Pray for the people who have the same lifestyle, for the people who don't have the same lifestyle. Here's the point. We are to pray for everyone. Now, let me be real honest with you. Most of the time, it's easy for us to point the finger and condemn people who are not like us rather than it is to pray for them for God's mercy and grace. I'm gonna ask you another question. Am I the only one that's been convicted of the Spirit of God by that this week? What would happen if we do seriously pray for all the people we encounter? Different kinds of people. People who desperately need the message of the gospel and the grace of God. Let me ask you this question. What were you like before you became a believer? You were lost. You were a sinner. What did you most need? reconciliation with the holy God. What did you do to earn it? Nothing. It has been by grace. Then if we are people who do not deserve the grace of God, but experience the mercy of God, how can we not pray the same grace for others who we were just like apart from God's grace? You see, we can point our finger at people who have darkened hearts, but let me remind you of this. Every human being operates in, out of the condition of their own heart. If they're lost, they do lost things. And what they need is an intervention from the Spirit of God. We pray for all kinds of people. But not only do we pray for all kinds of people, you think that was hard? This one's really going to get hard. We pray for all kinds of leaders. Yeah, some of you are laughing, I hear you. Some of you are moaning. Listen, this was a shock to the people in Ephesus. You have to understand, you know who the leader was in the Roman Empire? Nero. His life was filled with vanity. His life was filled with cruelty. His life was filled with hostility towards believers. He was arresting believers, burning them alive at the stake to use them as torches for his garden parties. That's what he was doing. Do you realize that in this world where Paul is telling them that they are to pray for their leaders and their authorities, that there was not a single Christian leader in the world at that point. No country was led by a Christian leader. They were all pagans. And Paul is telling them, pray for them. Pray on behalf of them. And they must have been asking the question, wait, wait a minute, wait, you want me to pray for Nero? The same guy, Paul, that's gonna execute you later? The same guy that's insane and is immoral? 
And we have the same thing today. Some of us who hear this, we say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You want to pray for my leaders? Don't you understand the condition of our nation today? Don't you understand the condition of our leaders? We've got leaders who are filled with hypocrisy. They put laws for us that they themselves don't follow. We've got leaders who are walking in a lack of integrity. They're blatantly breaking the laws and there's no justice for them, but they'll bring it on me. We're living in a time in our country where we are more morally bankrupt than any other time. And you want us to pray for our leaders? And if we do think about praying for our leaders, here's what we think. Oh, I want to pray some imprecatory prayers on them. And for those of you who don't know what that means, that means some harsh prayers. God, I pray that you would bring your fire from heaven and consume every wicked politician. (laughs) How do I know you pray that? Because I've just described myself. And when I read this scripture, God brought me on the carpet before him through his word and his spirit. Because here's what I've discovered in my own life. I spend way more time on my feet criticizing my leaders than I do on my knees praying for them. And I got a feeling that I'm not the only one on that carpet this morning. Because here's the reality. I don't agree with policies. I might not agree with positions. But I have the same recourse that the early church had that will change lives prayer. And we do not fight with conventional weapons. Our weapons are not the weapons of the world. But when we pray, we have God's power. When we pray, we have supernatural abilities for God to do things that we can never do. And when God calls on us to pray, we have the same recourse as the people in the days of those Roman emperors. They could not vote a person out. They could not impeach their king, but they had the power of prayer. And God is the one who moves the hearts of kings like water. And he accomplishes his purpose. We have prayer. But unlike the church in Ephesus, we can do something about our leaders beyond prayer. We can vote and we can take the responsibilities of good citizens of this country and as believers in Christ to vote for those individuals who can bring about a high moral standing in our culture and replace the godlessness that we see around us. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. If you're not registered to vote and you're a believer, you need to register to vote. Now, we didn't plan this, didn't plan this at all, but we happen to have voter registration taking place this morning. We're not telling you how to register, but we've got a table out here and at the Cross Point Center that you can register to vote today. So if you're not registered to vote, let me encourage you, go register to vote. Here's a second thing. If you're registered to vote and you don't vote, you better not complain. And not only that, you're missing out on part of the responsibility as a child of God, not only to pray, not only to pray for the leaders of this nation, but to ask God to show you what your part is in choosing and putting those people in office. And we are to pray. And we are to vote. So here's a tough thing. And when I watch the news, 
The other day I was watching it. Chris came in downstairs. She said, who are you yelling at? <laughs> Am I the only one like that today? Y'all are so spiritual in this place. Wow. And I've been so convicted about just praying. Because what God can do in a moment through the people of God praying, we can never accomplish in our lifetime with complaining. So, Paul gives us the benefit of it. What's the benefit of us praying for people and leaders that we may live, lead a peaceful and a quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Godly and dignified in every way. Here's the thing. When you and I are effective in praying, what we can experience is that God's doing a work in leading the government to do their most basic responsibilities in protecting and providing stability and peace for their nation. And we can pray that. And it's not a selfish prayer. Because when we have peace, when there's quiet ways, then what happens is the gospel can go unhindered. And the whole point of our praying is not so we can have a convenient life that my stocks will go up and I can look forward to a wonderful retirement. If you're thinking that in these days, you need to pray. But the reality is it's not about that. Here's what it's about. It's about that we can be effective with the message of the gospel. And we can keep preaching the good news in a culture where we're free to do so. That brings about godliness and a dignified life, which means a high moral standard. And I sometimes wonder if our lack of praying as a church and our lack of praying as God's people have not hindered those kinds of things. John Stott, who's a great, who was a great scholar, a great Bible teacher who's now with the Lord, wrote these words. He says, I sometimes wonder whether the comparatively slow progress towards peace and justice in the world and towards world evangelization is due more than anything else to the prayerlessness of the people of God. I wonder what would happen if the churches in America had been praying in 2020 and 2021, what our culture would even look like today. And God is calling us back to being those kinds of people. Let me tell you something. Christians should not be arrested just because of civil disobedience. Christians should be arrested and persecuted for living godly lives in a godless culture. And that's what we're called to be. So how are we to pray? We're to pray corporately. What are we to pray? We're to pray supplication, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving. Who are we to pray for? For all people and all leaders. Finally, why are we to pray? Why are we to pray? Paul tells us why we are to pray, and I love this. I'm running out of time. I'm not going to be able to get into a lot of this, but let me just tell you what Paul says. Why should we pray? This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. We're to pray because it's pleasing to God. It's a good thing. It's a wholesome thing. It's a holy thing. And it is pleasing to the Father, who is God, our Savior. Now, here's what he wants us to know, that he's not only our Savior, but he desires to be the Savior of those who are lost and need redemption. He goes on. Who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
This is the heart of God. If we could put it very simply, we pray for others because God has a genuine desire that sinners would be saved. God has a genuine desire that sinners would be saved. Now, this verse has a lot of controversy between two groups of people through the ages, Arminians and Calvinists. And for the last several hundred years, each of them has taken this verse to mean different things. Arminians love this verse because they can put away the thought of sovereign election. Calvinists like this verse because they redefine some of the words to support divine election. Now, each of these can have some different positions in that, and each of these can bring some serious questions. When God says that he desires all people to be saved, is he saying that all people will be saved? Not at all. God is not teaching, and Paul is not teaching us universalism here, that all people are going to be saved. And when it says that God desires that all people are saved, is that the same thing as his will? Does he will that all people will be saved? Well, if that's the case, then people who are not saved can stand against the absolute sovereign will of God, and we know that's an impossibility. So there's a difference between God desiring something and God decreeing something. God desires that sinners will come to the truth about who Jesus is. But it's not the same thing as he decreeing that every single sinner is gonna come to faith in Christ because people will go to hell. So what is the basic point here? The basic point is we gotta be real careful because this thing of the uh, the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man is an antinomy. They're both equally true, but they seem to contradict one another. And we can never comprehend this side of heaven what all it means for God to sovereignly choose and then people to give a response to the message of the gospel being wrapped in the love of God. And how that works out is a mystery to us. But what is not a mystery is that God desires people to come to know the truth of Christ. You cannot develop in the Old Testament and the New Testament a biblical theology that says God delights in the death of wicked people. God delights in the damnation of souls. Nowhere do we see that. In fact, we see the opposite that we see in Ezekiel, God says he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. In Isaiah, he says, come to me all who will be saved. And then Peter writes this. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. So here's the heart of God. God desires that lost people will come to know the truth. And while we can't reconcile all of that with all the doctrine in the word of God, here's one thing we do know. He has a genuine desire for people to know Christ. So what does that mean for you and me? That should be true for us. Why do I pray? Because it blesses the heart of God when I pray for the lost. It blesses the heart of God when I pray that people will come to know Christ. What is the truth? He tells us the truth. He says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. 
Paul is destroying the notion of universalism. He says, no, there's only, there's, 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 there's not every way leads to heaven. Universalism says everyone will ultimately go to heaven. He's also destroying the notion of inclusivism. Inclusivism is a positive thought today where people can come to salvation on whatever path they're on. And they can come to know the teachings of Jesus even though they never personally know Jesus. That is being taught worldwide today. That if you're a Buddhist, you can come to salvation just in, in, in understanding the principles of Jesus without even knowing Jesus in that, that, that religion. But that's false. Because he says it's very clear. He says there's one God. There's one mediator between God and man the man, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the only one who's the mediator between God and man because he is both God and man. As God, he alone can forgive sins. As man, he was the only one perfect enough to die for our sins. He represents both God and he represents both humanity in all of that. And today, Jesus is still God and man. He says, which he gave himself as a ransom for all which means he paid the price. He satisfied the wrath of God on the cross. Now that doesn't mean when he says ransom for all that all people are covered under the blood of Christ and they're all going to heaven. No, his death is sufficient for all, but it's particular for those who surrender to Christ. And we see that it's only through him that they can have salvation. Then he says this, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I love this. He goes back to what Garrett said last week. This is the truth, and we are to give that testimony at the proper time to others. And as we live in this culture, not only do we pray for the lost, but we share the testimony with the loss of who Jesus is. And as we do that, they can come to know the truth. And then he says this, for I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. He's saying, that's what God called me to do. And this is what we are to do. Let me give you just a little thing of what I do all the time when I go to restaurants. And it fits right into this. Most of the time when I go to a restaurant, I meet with the, the waiter or the waitress and I ask them their name. And then when they bring the meal out, I usually say to them, is there something I can pray for you about? You know, it's interesting. Nobody ever turns down prayer. They're shocked. They're like, oh, um, um, good day, good day, yeah. Just good day. Uh, um, and a good tip. Yeah, give me a good tip. Yeah, yeah. So, great, I'll pray for you. I was with a guy the other day, a dear friend of mine. We were at Two Guys Grill. This young lady comes out and she's just happy and bubbly and she brings the food and, and, and she, I said, listen, we're gonna pray over our food in a minute. Can I pray for you about anything? She was like, oh, I don't know. I never think about praying. Um, um, yeah, that, um, that, that, that I have a good time with my family this weekend. Great got it. We'll pray for you. Well, she walked off. And as we began to pray, I just prayed, God, I ask today that on behalf of this young girl, that she would suddenly be thinking about you where she's never thought about you before. And that you would start putting her thoughts in her mind, even through this prayer today, thinking, well, who would pray for me? Why would they pray for me? And that your Holy Spirit would begin doing a work in her and convicting her and drawing her to yourself. I give you thanks, Father, 
for what you're going to do because your word will not return void. And we said, amen. And the guy said, wow, I'm gonna start doing that. And you know what? The next time I go there, I'll see her. You know, she'll, I'll make sure that she waits on me. And you know what she's gonna anticipate? Hey, we're gonna pray over this food in a minute. Can I pray for you about Yeah, let me tell you what I need to pray about. I've done that and led two people to faith in Christ. And one young lady went and led her grandfather to faith in Christ. When we pray, we are to pray corporately. When we pray, we are to pray for those four things. And we are to pray for all people because God loves them. Here's what I want to call you to. I want to call you to a serious contemplation of praying. We have an election that's coming up. This is going to give us an opportunity to pray for our leaders and pray for ourselves in what lies before us and that we will walk in a manner that is seeking the heart and the mind of God, not only for our lives, but for our church and for our culture and for the world. We can talk about prayer, but there's a difference between talking about prayer and praying. October the 4th, Tuesday night, 6.30, in this room, we're coming together for this corporate time of giving obedience to what God has given to us as the church. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. And Father, I thank you that as we deal with all of these issues in our lives, they are real issues. And we see, Father, the spiritual bankruptcy of our culture. And Father, please help us to see that the answer is not politics. The answer is you. If my people who are called by my name would humble themselves and confess their sins and seek my face. Then I will hear from heaven and heal their land. We come to you, Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening, and we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.